A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews. How are you all? Are you okay? Oh, I don't know. You know those days where you take on things and then you take on even more and you just think, oh, good grief. It's uh, it's time for another cup of coffee. So you've caught me. We're in the middle of half term. So there's that. And then it's a very busy work time. So there's that. So we're we're combining the delights of half term and work. And it's my father's 85th birthday today. So I decided to do a lunch for him. And in my normal fashion, decided not to do, you know, he he said, oh, cheese and bread and cheese will be fine. And I was like, no, you're not having that. So roast lunch. Yeah, everything. It was it's just been it's just been a bit busy. And at one point I was chopping vegetables and I'd given the dog a bit of cauliflower and I was on a work call and I turned round and the dog had enjoyed munching on the raw raw cauliflower, but had just spread these cauliflower crumbs everywhere after I had hoovered. So it's just one of those days where you just think it's all fine. It's gone well. Thank goodness. Nobody was food poisoned. So that was good. But it's just it's been a long day. Just feels like a long day. and I'll be ready to sit down soon. But I can't sit down before I tell you about these books, can I? And what a selection. Let me get the books for you. So the first book I've got to talk to you about is called Mercy by the one and only David Baldacci. Then we've got The Lion Club by Annie Ward. Old Friends by Felicity Everett. Roaring Girls by Holly Kite. And Crimson by Niviaka Corneliuson. Now, there were some of the books that I absolutely loved, some of the books that I liked, and a book that I didn't get on with quite so well. So which will those be? Well, let's first of all talk about Mercy. And this was definitely one of the books that I really, really liked, that I loved. I mean, I've been reading David Baldacci books for well, as long as I can remember, really. OK, I didn't read them when I was a child, but all through my adult life, I've read his books and enjoyed his books. Um, and so, yeah, it's just great to, to come back to it. Oh, no. And all the books have just lent against my little recording booth. Sorry about that. I'm having to record in another place. I'm actually on my knees recording this. 
hidden in her back bedroom because a child is shouting on the Xbox. It's such a joy. Anyway, so this book, Mercy, let's read the blurb. The hunt is finally over. FBI agent Atley Pine is at the end of her long journey to discover what happened to her twin sister, Mercy, who was abducted when the girls were just six years old, an incident which destroyed her family and left Atley physically and mentally scarred. She knew her sister and parents were out there somewhere and she had to find them, dead or alive. Atley and her assistant, Carol Blum, discover the truth, but the truth hurts and hurt makes you tough. So how tough do you have to be to forgive? As they uncover a shocking trail of lies, greed, fear and revenge, they must face one final challenge, a challenge more deadly and dangerous than they ever could have imagined. Um, and let's read the first sentence as we do. Oh, gosh, yes. Chapter one. Inch by solid inch, Atley Pine watched the battered coffin being lifted to the surface from where it had rested six feet down for nearly two decades. Um, I absolutely love this book. It just showed me how skillful uh, David is as a writer, um, that he just has me turning those pages. I think, you know, he's just... He's such a great author. Anyway, enough of my drivel. Let's talk to David now. So, David Baldacci, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to be here. Well, uh, it's just wonderful to talk to you. I mean, let's start with Mercy, an amazing book. Did you feel really compelled to complete the story? I did. I, you know, this was a challenge for me. I'd never done a, a series where I had a series character who she was solving mysteries in every book mm. but then there was an underlying mystery thread throughout the entire four books about finding her sister and that was a real challenge because it's one thing to write it you know encapsulated mystery one per book and then you're done but to have that thread survive throughout four different books um yes i thought that by the time i finished the third book i knew that the fourth book would wrap everything up because when i started it i didn't know how many books this would be sometimes it's just how it is you have to see how it plays out but four books seemed right and when the characters come to you as you're writing, do they come sort of fully formed? They're they're right in front of you, quite visually. Some of them are absolutely. Some of the some characters it takes me a little while to get used to them. I, I always tell people it takes about a hundred pages for me to know a character really well. It's like you know getting to know a good friend over a long period of time. <laughs> you have you have to spend time with them. You know, walk them down the street, let them talk, see what they can do, and you know, because it's you're gonna you're gonna be with them for a long time, so you better build that connection up as quickly as possible. So, are you the sort of author that knows everything about those people? What what they ate for breakfast? What what they want for Christmas. <laughs> I have no character profile sheet. I just, I just let, I let them evolve. I kind of, it's kind of what I try to do is when I meet a brand new person and then you spend time getting to know them, you learn things about them along the way and new things come up and you sort of process that. And then you learn something else new about them. I always find that it's, it's much more fascinating for me to write a character that way because it's a sense of exploration and discovery. And I feel like the result will be, it'll be the same sensation for the reader, sort of that sense of exploration and discovery. And then when you finish, do the characters linger? Do they stay with you or are they closed off when you close the last page? I, they talk to me, you know, maybe I should get some medication for that, but uh, they, <laughs> they, they talk to me and sometimes they're like grabbing by the shirt and they say, Hey, I haven't been in a book in a while, you know, come on, come on. I'm here. I'm ready. My vacation's over. I'm ready to roll. 
Um, but I do, I, and I've, I've obviously created them all. They're all very important and significant for me. And I would have been away from them for a while. Yeah, I do get that hankering of like, I need to get them back on the page. So how do you decide what's going to be on next book? Is it the characters that are clamoring the loudest in, in your mind or something else? It's, I think, just from a practical point of view, if I'm uh, establishing a brand new series, I feel like it's important to be consistent and bring them out at least once a year so the readers can get to know them and they can have that connection, underlying connection, so build that character up. I've done that with every series that I've created. And then after that, it becomes, what am I interested in? And if I'm interested in something that's set in the 1950s, then I would do an Aloysius Archer novel. If I'm if I'm something that would fit an Avis Decker or fit, you know, a King and Maxwell or fit, you know, a fill-in-the-blank other character, then I would be sort of matriculate towards that character. Sometimes it's like I want something new. I want to start from scratch. I want a brand new series and I want to introduce. I did that with Archer. I've got a one book coming out later this year in the summer called The 620 Man. I think it would be the beginning of a brand new series. And then next year, a book I'm working on now um, with a totally new female character, very different from anyone I've ever written before that I think might tip into a series as well. So sometimes it's like, I need, I need something new and fresh. But that's phenomenal to have all those different books in, in various stages. I mean, you've been writing for so long when when it wasn't your primary job. And, and right. how do you sort of keep that passion for writing? That passion is the only thing that kept me writing while nobody was you know, bothering any, didn't have anything to do with me, you know, not buying any of my stuff. And that's the only thing that kept my, my motor going because I couldn't I couldn't go a day without writing something. You know, and I think a lot of people get into writing for wrong reasons that, you know, I hate my day job. I want to sell the movie rights, you know, and I want to get rich and then I'm out of here. Me, it's just it's it's not a passion or a hobby or a job. It's an, it's part of my identity. Um, so it's really when you say you know, who are you? I, I say, well, I'm a writer, you know, I'm a storyteller. This is what I do. This is what I breathe. It just do is just out of me. I can't, I couldn't some one day decide not to do it. It just would be like, you might as well just lie down in bed and, you know, gently go off. <laughs> so is writing just sort of part of your DNA or is it, is it in a way an escape from everything else? It is. It's both. You know, I, I have to say that particularly over COVID, I have to tell you that, you know, all my travel was canceled. The whole world was full, full of angst. Everybody was on, you know, nervous and scared and terrified and all that. And I have to say that um, my stories were my catharsis. They were my safe space. And I wrote a lot. I wrote, I think over the last two years, I think I've written five books. And, wow. and I, I needed that just because I needed to escape uh, from all the stuff that was going on around the world. I mean, I soak it all in. I read all the stuff. I'm, I'm a statistic kind of a guy. I like to know the numbers. I like to know what's going on. So I read news like a lot more than I should. Let's put it that way. But that was my safe space to keep my sanity. So if you find it hard to keep the books going, will your publisher say, oh, can we just organize another pandemic to keep David? <laughs> God, well, let's hope it doesn't come to that. <laughs> yeah. Keep writing, David, keep writing. <laughs> Don't let that happen. I mean, is, is it hard in a way because you're such an accomplished author? I'm not just saying that, but you you know, you are. Our readers like myself, our, our expectations are so high. Does that actually make it harder for you? I, you know, I think about that too. When I, when I wrote my first novel, Absolute Power, I actually went out and I read, you know, top crime fiction and thrillers of the day. 
because uh, I really wanted to see what I was going to be competing against. I just, you know, I was a lawyer. I was very pragmatically minded. I wanted to see what was the competition out there. If I'm going to send this stuff off, I need to know that it's at least as good as what's out there. Otherwise, why would they bother? Um, so I try to bring my A game with every book and I try to do something new and novel with every book. And I do a lot of intense research, most of which I have to leave out of the book because I'm not writing a textbook, I'm writing a, a novel. Um, but that type of knowledge allows me to do something fresh and new and you know, maybe introduce things to people that they hadn't heard of before, didn't know anything about, that I found interesting and fascinating. A big, you know, the big pleasure of this job is I get to go out and talk to a lot of people who do specialized things for a living and sort of just have great conversations with them and build up friendships. And there's a lot of fascinating stuff that's going on out there. Um, a lot of really scary crap as well, you know, that I probably would never want to write about, um, but is out there. So um, that's what really drives me. Um, and I just, but I, but I do, I understand that the readers are, you know, they're, they're devoting time and money. And I don't want to ever, ever phone it in. I don't want to just say, hey, I'm just going to write a book real quick and here it is. Hope you enjoy it. I hope you don't. If I'm not satisfied with the end product, there's no way in the world a reader's going to be satisfied with it. And Mercy is such a sort of a high octane page turner of a book. You know, you just can't stop turning those pages and finding out what happens next. Is that... Do you still enjoy reading those sort of books? I do. Um, I, I mean... Sometimes people equate pace with, oh, it's commercial fiction. It's just fluff. You know, it's what you would read on the beach. But I would point out that it's really difficult to write a book that has sustained pace throughout the entire novel. I mean, every book usually has some dead places in it. And I also point out, you know, a very accomplished American author, John Updike, someone once asked him, how come you don't write crime fiction? And he said, I hope this is not apocryphal. I hope it's true. He said, I'm not smart enough. And here's the thing with crime fiction. We had to have all the indicia and elements of any other type of fiction with characters, dialogue, narrative, plot, and all that other stuff. But overlaid on top of that, we have a puzzle piece, we have a mystery piece, we have to have clues and foreshadowing and payoffs and red herrings and misdirections that a lot of other fiction doesn't necessarily have to have. You know, they're just telling a story. Mm -hmm. You know, we're judged by a different uh, expectation. We're judged by the surprise factor, the wow factor, the twists and turns factor. Plus, we want to have really great characters and a really cool story. Okay. <laughs> you know what? So no don't pressure. Look, right. Don't look, don't look down upon us. And at the same time, we want those pages to fly by, you know, and um, I, all I say to people who don't write crime fiction and look down upon it, here's what I say. Try to do it. Yes, exactly. And I would say myself, I'd have thought, oh, it's so easy. But then when you try, it's 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 impossible. So I I take my my hat off. Well, if I had a hat on, I'd take it off too. Um, let's talk about Dreamtown as well, which is out the fourteenth of April, based in nineteen fifty two. Um, sort of L A, Las Vegas, another page turner. It looks like it was. Were you determined to sort of write that book in that time? Absolutely. I you know Archer is a special character for me. Um, and the late 1940s, early 1950s, throughout the world, but especially in the United States, we have been to through two major events in our in our country's history: an incredibly long-lasting depression, and everybody was poor, everybody got wiped out. Um, and we've been through this geographical nightmare of a dust bowl that wiped out the Midwest, and then we've been through the World War, 1946 to like 1960. People were sick of all that. They wanted a better life. They wanted a house. They wanted a car. They wanted kids. They wanted some peace. They wanted prosperity. They wanted to have some fun. 
Um, so Archer came out of the war and he's got all those things behind him. And he wants to have something interesting to do with his life. And like a lot of people, he went west. So many, like a thousand people a day went to Los Angeles, moved to Los Angeles every single day for like, I don't know, nine years. A thousand people every single day for years. People were looking for a better life. That's great. There was a lot of cool things happening in, in Los Angeles. You know, you had the movie and Hollywood. They were building planes and cars and everything out there. But associated with that is this huge criminal element as well. Because wherever you have money, you're going to have people who want to take it from you. So the two places out there that sort of represent that the best are Los Angeles, Hollywood, and Las Vegas, um, which is where the Bob moved because, you know, it got a little tough to make a buck in LA and got a lot easier in Las Vegas. So that's the two places that Archer goes back and forth. And I, I love writing about him. I love writing about, you know, the fashions, the cigarettes, the cocktails, the cars, everything. And, but about how it's, it's a challenge for me, you know, I'm a 21st century writer, 20th, 21st century writer. So when I'm writing Archer, I have to put on a different hat detective wise and plot wise because I don't have iPhones, I don't have Google, I don't, you know, he doesn't have those traditional tools modern day detectives have to rely on. Um, and I have to go back to, you know, this guy's beating the pavement, he's talking to people. That's why they call them gum shoes, you know, rubber sole shoes, they just walk the pavement and they, that's how they carry out their tasks. They talk to people that go places, they see things, they think about things. Um, I love running that time period, I really do. So are you always coming up with ideas? Do you have a notebook that has David's book ideas <laughs> in <laughs> that's very valuable and uh, goes everywhere? Over there, there's like files and notebooks lined up against the wall with different projects on them. And it used to be, you know, when I first started out, I was writing one book a year, then it became two books a year, occasionally three books a year, and so I have occasional screenplay thrown into that. And I like the idea of going between projects at the same time, you know, where I write, you know, I work on one book at a time and I work on another book for two weeks and of another book for another two weeks. It allows me really to be a lot more efficient because at some point in the time when I'm writing a novel, I'm going to run into a wall where I haven't thought enough ahead. Okay. So instead of just cooling my heels and not doing anything, I move over to another project. And I work on that until I'm run out of gas on that one. And I move back and forth and I compartmentalize really well. I did that as a trial lawyer. I worked on multiple cases that I was juggling. And so, but when I was working on a case or when I'm working on a book, there's nothing else that exists in the world. My focus is total. And you, when you first started out, you were writing till 2 a.m. I mean, you were doing a full day's work and then writing to 2 a.m. seven days a week. I mean, again, talking about focus, that's some focus. Yeah, but even though it sounds a little draconian, that was my favorite time of the day or night because that was a time where I got to write what I wanted to write it, not what clients and partners are telling me I had to write for my job as a lawyer. So after having done all that for 10 or 12 hours a day, I'd go down to my little cubby and pull up the stories that I was really interested in. So, you know, except, you know, not having that, it would have been much harder to be a lawyer, I think. I mean, I enjoyed it, it was challenging. I litigated cases all over the country. I was always the big, badass Washington, D.C. lawyer coming in from out of town, you know, with the black hat on and some people to throw tomatoes at. Um, so I enjoy the challenge of that. But having this fiction you know, side to me that I could fall back on, uh, it was a godsend. So when you're getting the ideas and you're writing the notes in your files that you have, are those ideas triggered more by events or by people that you meet? both you know I have been I have um, I have been triggered and inspired to write a story by people that I've met 
uh, that might have had an interesting backstory or might just be how they looked. Uh, it might have been a book that I read. Um, when I came up with the Amos Decker series, he's my detective. He has hyperthymesia and synesthesia. He had a brain trauma. He was an American football player. He got blindsided on the field and almost died from, from the collision. And it caused his brain to rewire around the damaged areas and open up areas of his mind, including memory. So he has almost total recall. And synesthesia, which is a commingling of sensory pathways. So people who have that, they see numbers or days of the week in vivid color. A lot of musicians, they speculate Beethoven and Mozart probably had synesthesia. Everything is more vibrant and robust. I read a book called, I think it's something like Born on a Blue Tuesday about a person who had this condition. And then I started reading a lot more books about how brain trauma can lead to the brain rewiring and giving you quote unquote superpowers. And that's really where the idea for Amos Decker came from. You know, another book I wrote years ago was called The Simple Truth. I had read um, a legal case about, uh, back in the 60s, 50s, 60s and 70s, the CIA wanted to, in, the, in the DOD wanted to build super soldiers. Uh, who could fight longer, fight harder, blah, 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 right? So they were giving soldiers unwittingly, not telling them, PCP. Um, and obviously PCP makes you enormously strong. The adrenaline is incredible. You know, you can fight with the strength of four guys. But uh, what they didn't figure in was it also makes you homicidal and uncontrollable, <laughs> right? Not so good. Not so good. And so I... Um, I thought, well, you know what, let me take that to the extreme. Let me extrapolate that out where the army did that. And the army is an organization that never throws a record away and they're always communicating with soldiers. So let's say the army did that to one soldier and um, he killed someone. He had no idea why and he ended up in prison. He's been in prison for his whole life, right? And then 25 years later, the army sends him a letter as the army is wont to do, they do this stuff all the time. And they said, oh, by the way, you know, back in 1971, uh, we gave you PCP and that's probably why you killed that person. And uh, whoops, sorry. <laughs> and that changed that character's life. So that story really, I remember reading that legal case and thought, you know what, I can do something with this. So if somebody sees you and you're sitting there watching someone or reading something and out comes your pencil and you're making a note, do they think, all right, David's got an idea. I'm in, I'm yeah. in. Be wary yes. if it's you that's in front of it. You know, if I'm stood there and you're writing a note, oh my goodness, what's, yeah. What's your favourite part of the of the writing process? I mean, it strikes me that it's the ideas and, and the initial writing rather than yeah. the editing, or have I yeah. got that wrong? No, I would say um, certainly the the most excitement is starting the book. You know, the, I I plan a little bit, I outline a little bit. I've got some major thoughts in mind, and you know, some macro stuff and a few micro stuff. And but I'm itching to start that novel. So the first few chapters, God, the rush is like, you know, if everybody could feel that rush, we could wipe out the illegal drug market because you wouldn't <laughs> need it. I mean, it's just the most powerful brain stimulus I've ever had. So that is terrific. But I have to say that once you finish the novel and you print out all the pages, I do editing all the way through as I'm on the computer. You know, I go back and edit nonstop all the time. But it comes to the point when the book is done and I print it out and the pages are real, you know, like, like these. Pages are real. I print it all out and I pull out my pens and I just bloody the page. And I tell you, that is just an exhilarating feeling too because that's when you turn... Um, something you put together into something that can be really special. That's where, you know, uh, a book becomes a story. Um, that's where a massive pages become a novel. 
I love um, reading about and going to see uh, uh, first manuscripts of really classical novels. And you see the marginalia and all the notes and stuff and how the words have changed. I remember I tell people on the, uh, on the uh, um, Declaration of Independence, you know, you can go to the, the Library of Congress and they have it digital and you can click on it and you can see all the, all the marginalia on the Declaration of Independence and it shows which founding father did that. And one, of the, and one of the most famous phrases in that document was inalienable rights. Men are, born, men are born equal with certain inalienable rights. Well, Jefferson originally didn't use an inalienable. He used like three or four words. And you see this cross out and you see inalienable put in instead, which is the perfect word. And probably if anybody recognizes one word from the Declaration of Independence, it's probably that one. Um, and it was Benjamin Franklin who put that word in. That was his contribution to that. Um, so I love, because that's where you get a peek inside the head of the writer. Uh, okay, I know you, you wrote this sentence originally this way, now you've changed it all over the place, and that marginalia, your markouts and your add-ins give me some insight into your process and what you're thinking. And what I'm doing it for real for my stuff, it's just, again, it's a brain rush. It's just an incredible feeling. So as you're editing, are you reducing the word count or increasing it? almost always reducing. Um, you know, I, I've, been, I've written screenplays for a long time. I've adapted one of my novels for feature film. And um, I think writing scripts, which is, you know, it's 110 pages and you have to hit your marks completely. And every scene has to have three reasons for being in there. There's no room for, for fudging. There's no room for, you know, extra words. Um, I try to, Early on in my career, I think I was too verbose. I wrote too much. I used too many words. If I can say in 10 words what I used to say in 100, I'm a much better writer because of that. You know, one of the, the greatest American political speech of all time was the Gettysburg Address by Abraham Lincoln. It was only 363 words long. It took Lincoln two minutes to say it. The guy who spoke before him was a congressman from Minnesota. He spoke for two and a half hours. Nobody remembers what the hell that guy said or even what his name was. But Lincoln stood up and spoke 363 words and went into the fabric of American history. Uh, probably one of the greatest political speeches ever um, because every word deserved and it earned the right to be there. That's amazing. Just to go back to when you were writing that first book, if there's anything that you could go back and sort of whisper in your ear as you're writing that first book, what would it be? Um, it was probably longer than it needed to be. Um, there, was, there were probably too many characters to follow, um, ideally. Um, and, you know, <laughs> as my mom would say, I used the F word too many times. <laughs> I know my, I, my friend, John Grisham, we've been friends a long time. I don't think John has ever used the F word in any of his books. And the reason why he said is because he always wanted his mother to be able to read them. <laughs> God, bless, God bless you, John. So I, I would have changed that. Um, I wouldn't have been as graphic because I still use, you know, coarse language in my novels, but I picked my spots because I found that the more you use it, the more you deal with the power of what you're trying to do. So savor those. Those are, those are 50 caliber round machine gun rounds. Don't use them frugally and use them thoughtfully. And when you were writing that first book, was it easy to get published? Well, I had been writing for about 15 years, short stories, screenplays. So I didn't think it was easy to get published because no. really, I, I couldn't get any traction. All I had were rejections. Um, so when Absolute Power was finished, here's what I did. 
I knew I needed an agent back then. Self-publishing was not Amazon. It meant you had to go print Xerox copies and sell them out of your car, right? So I, I did a query letter, very short, and it was very important. And again, every word counted. I said, "Dear so and so, I'm David Baldacci. I'm, I'm a lawyer in Washington D.C. This story is about the president, a burglar, a cover-up, a murder." And I guarantee that if you read the first page, you won't stop until you read the last page. Sincerely, me. And the reason I did that was two reasons. One, I felt like I needed to have confidence in my material. Otherwise, how could I expect them to have confidence? But two, really more importantly, I figured half of them would, would force themselves to read it just so they could write me back and say, no, you're wrong. Yeah. You suck. <laughs> you know? um, so I sent it out to, and I went to the bookstore. Um, and anytime I heard about a, a brand new writer coming out, you know, getting published, right? I'd get, you know, the name of the book. I'd go down to the bookstore. I'd look in the acknowledgement section where they thank their agent. So I got names of seven agents. And, um, and I told me two things. One, this agent took on first-time novelists. Not all of them do. And this agent had the wherewithal to get a first-time novelist through the publication process. So I thought that was important. So I sent, you know, the query letter and the entire manuscript up to these seven agents. And um, I told them I was sending it simultaneously so they know that other people were reading it. And I was hoping to hear back from, you know, one of them to say, hey, you know, it's pretty good. Why don't you write something else and we'll see. And I heard back from all seven of them. Six of them wanted to be my agent. The seventh one, so one said, you know, this material was not for him, which is fine. So I went up to New York and I interviewed all these agents, which was surreal because, you know, I'd never had an opportunity to do this at all. I, all I was expecting back was, no, we don't, no, we don't, no, we don't, right? And the agent I picked and my agent today, Aaron Priest, he told me something different than everybody else did. He said, look, anybody in New York can sell this book. This is a great book. I can sell it. So can everybody else you're talking to. He goes, but my question to you is, is this the only book you have inside of you or do you have other books you want to write? I said, I said, why do you want to know that? He said, because I don't represent books. I represent careers. And that really made a difference with me. So I was like, I've got a lot of books. <laughs> so, so I picked him and we've been a great partnership forever. And I have to say that the seventh agent, um, I met him at an event a number of years later. And he came over to me, he was so, so very kind. And he said, first, congratulations on all your success. Second, you're the biggest effing mistake I've ever made in my whole career. <laughs> and I said, no, I wasn't because this is, probably the most subjective business of all. And if you weren't connected to the material, you could never have been as good of an agent for me as another agent who was connected to the material. So you didn't make a mistake. He goes, well, I appreciate you trying to make me feel better. Still the biggest effing mistake <laughs> I've ever made. <laughs> and the agent that you went with, I'm interested, was it the first one you met? Because people often say they go with the first agent they meet. No, he was like, he was probably the fifth. Oh, so he wow. Was toward, he was, he was towards, in fact, he, I had sent the material up to his partner because um, that was the name I'd gotten. Um, and later when I walked into the agency, you know, I met with her and she goes, I just want to let you know, I'm going to hand you off to another agent at this agency. And I thought, oh, you know, maybe I'll get a junior person, whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm here and I'm in the office. Right. She goes, I don't think you'll have a problem. His name was on the door when you walked in. So the thing with Aaron was that he had been, um, uh, planning to go to the Caribbean on vacation and, um, his partner had given him half the manuscript to read while she was reading it. She'd read the first part, then he flew down to the Caribbean, 
and he read it and he, he, he came back the next day. He flew back up the next day to get the other half and he stayed. His wife was still down in the Caribbean and he read the rest of it and he knew I was coming up. So he stayed to meet me. Um, that's how excited he was about the material. And um, that excitement really, you know, connected to me. That's amazing. What a what a, a way to feel confident about starting. Yeah. But as you say, you'd already been writing for several years before then. So. Well, I've been I've been writing since I was like eight years old. I was trying to sell short stories to Playboy magazine when I was seventeen. <laughs> because back then, Playboy they published a lot of great short fiction. Like Tony Morrison, John Updike, George Carroll Oates. I mean, a lot of great short fiction in there and obviously I never got published you know and I tried to I, I submitted to the Atlantic Monthly I submitted to Story Magazine every place I get Esquire um, just got a lot of rejections and I started writing screenplays I did screenplays for like seven years got a lot of rejections on that even though I had a couple of options um, and then I attempted to write novels so by the time my first novel sold you know I was 34 I've been writing since I was eight yeah so there's some perseverance required there just shows it, there has you know it has to be it's not a it's not a business where I, as I tell people I was an overnight success it just took me six thousand nights to yeah. get there. <laughs> so if someone says to you, "Oh, I want to be an author," do you say, "Yeah, go for it," or do you say, "Well, it's it's hard work"? I always tell them, "Ask why." I just say, "Why?" Tell me why you want to be a writer. If you know, again, if it's because you hate your day job, not a good reason. You're never going to make it through the gauntlet. You know, I can make it through writing, writing anything, and particularly then sending out first rejection that comes back. It's going to be like a mortal wound. It's going to knock you out. And you're going to say, "Screw it, I'm out of here." And said love, and you know, the love of being a storyteller. That's why I think people are meant to be writers, become writers, published writers, active writers, because it's inside them. It's that motor that won't stop. They go through all the crap you have to go through, all the rejection. And if you have that, uh, you'll make it through. If you don't, and most people who say they want to write something, and here's here's my my the first warning sign is people say, yeah, I've always wanted to write a book. I just can't find the time. Then I know right away they're never going to write the book because wanting to write something should be this obsession. So nothing in your life should be able to prevent you from doing it. Um, and if you actually overcome all that stuff and you actually do it, you are meant to be a writer. So it's wanting to be a writer rather than a published author. So it's, it's wanting to create stories, mm -hmm. you know. Um, look, I wasn't going to get rich selling, selling short stories. I love short stories. I love reading them. A lot of my favorite authors specialize in short stories. And I wanted to create stories like that. I and, mean, you know, when you sell a short story, you get 50 bucks, you know, or you get five free copies of the magazine. Whoopee, I wasn't going to live off that. But, you know, to be able to have validation that someone liked my stuff and to see it in print, that's terrific. But knowing that I had actually finished a story, that was a hell of a triumph as well. So my last question, I mean, you're best-selling author. You just keep delivering. Will, will you keep writing until you stop drawing breath? Is it just... Yeah, even if, even, even if my stuff falls out of favor and nobody wants to publish it or read it anymore... I still couldn't imagine not getting up every day and sitting down and crafting stories. I mean, it's just, I did it for a long time and never got any recognition or money for it, compensation, and I still enjoyed it. So I imagine on the other end of my life, it would be the same thing. 
Well, we hope you do keep writing them because we love reading them. So David Baldacci, whose latest book is Mercy and then Dreamtown coming out soon. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The next book is called The Lion Club by Annie Ward. And uh, it says three women, two bodies, one big lie. Here's a blurb on this one. At an elite private school nestled in the Colorado mountains, a tangled web of lies draws together three vastly different women. Natalie, a young office assistant, dreams of having a life like the school mum she deals with every day. Women like Brooke, a gorgeous heiress. Heiress? Heiress. Ferociously loving mother and serial cheater. And Asha, an overachieving and overprotective mum who suspects her husband of having an affair. Their fates are bound by their relationships with the handsome, charming assistant athletic director, Nicholas, who Natalie loves, Brooke wants and Asha needs. But when two bodies are carried out of the school early one morning, it seems the jealousy between mothers and daughters, rival lovers and the haves and have-nots has shattered the surface of this isolated, affluent town, a town where people will stop at nothing to get what they want. Uh, Let's do the first sentence. Prologue. The necktie of her ex was still clasped in her hand when Natalie woke. Um, 
oh, this is a good book. Th- this is a great book, but it's a bit like one of those amazing oranges that has a really thick skin that you have to really cut into and it takes a while to remove. But when you get to the actual orange, uh, um, it's, you know, you can smell it almost as you're getting through to it. But once you get to it, it's so sweet. When you crack it, it's so good. And this book for me was like that. You've got to give it time. You've got to it's sort of you feel a bit misty at the beginning that you don't know exactly how everything is and who everything is. It's not clear cut. And that for me, having given it time and being patient, it added to the book and it made it stand out. I thought it was really good, really enjoyed it. Um, it's a bit like Big Little Lies, but different, better. I just thought it was, a, yeah, it's a good book. Annie Ward, The Lion Club, bravo. Um, now we come on to the next book, which was not what I thought it was going to be. So the book is called Old Friends by Felicity Everett. And this is the blurb. Harriet and Mark have it all. Successful careers, a lovely house in a leafy London suburb, twin boys on the cusp of leaving home. Yvette and Gary share a smaller place with their two daughters in a shabbier part of the same borough. But when the stars align for a collective move north, it means a fresh start for them all. For Mark, it's a chance to escape the rat race. For Harriet, a distraction from her unfulfilled dream of a late third child. Gary has decided to reboot the Mad Chester Band that made him famous, while Yvette hopes it will give her daughters what she never had herself. First sentence. The hot tub was deserted now. It nestled in the corner of the dark rooftop, the thrum of its pump competing with the low moan of the wind over the nearby Pennines and the discordant hee-haw of the retreating siren. So this was not what I thought it was going to be, and there's nothing wrong with the book at all about that, but I thought it was going to be dark, disturbed... Sorry, I'm kneeling down properly now because my legs are hurting. Um, I thought it was going to be sort of this dark, disturbed, but it's lighter. Um, it was more about the family and friendships and the the morals. Um, so it was... It, I was kept expecting lots of bodies to rock up and murders and awfulness... But it yes, people can be awful, but it was just more about the people. So I don't know why I didn't think that. Uh, I mean, uh, on the cover it says sharp, dark and brilliantly twisty. So I think that made me again think it was more of a thriller. Um, but the tagline on the front is moving in together. What could go wrong? So I suppose I should have paid more attention to that. I was just confused and it. It's well written. It's a good book, great stories, good characters. I was just like, oh, there's no serial killer. (laughs) Where's where's the blood? Um, So, yeah, it's a it's a great book. Really interesting read. um, But it depends what you're looking for. So if you want something about the people and the relationships, then definitely this could be one that you'd like. If you're looking for sort of more murdery, thrillery, then, well, this could just be a nice different read for you. Just have to let me know. So that's Old Friends by Felicity Everett. Good book. And now we come on to another book. This is called Roaring Girls by Holly Kite. This is a non-fiction. Yes, we're going non-fiction. 
Here's the blurb. Roaring Girls tells the stories of eight daring trailblazers who redefine what it meant to be a woman in pre-20th century Britain, from a cross-dressing thief to a rebel slave. These formidable women refused to play by the rules and, in doing so, helped sow the seeds of modern feminism. Um, uh, right, OK, let me read you the first sentence of this introduction. It's phenomenal. Girls, we're told, are not supposed to roar. Um, I thought it was really interesting. And because you've got these various um, women to read about and it's all broken down one chapter per person, it's a great book to have. Read a chapter, and then go back to maybe your fiction book and then go back and read another chapter. So it's one just to have. It's like a bedside table book. Do you know what I mean? It's one. I've got to kneel up again. I'm. <laughs> this is so uncomfortable. I'm so sorry. Um, but it's. It's one that you want to read fully, but to be able to give time to each story. So that's why I'd suggest just breaking it up a chapter and then go back to your other book. I thought it was great. I love the title. I love the premise. I love the stories. Um, there are some illustrations as well. Really good. I'm going to hold on to this one because I think it's one that I will want to return to. So that's Roaring Girls by Holly Kite. And the last book... Uh, before I pass out because there's no blood circulating because I'm still kneeling. It's called Crimson by Niviak Corneliusen. Um, I read this book because it was part of a book club that I'm a member of. Uh, I like the sound of it. I thought it sounded decent enough and it's 175 pages. So I thought even if I'm struggling with it, I can get through it. And sometimes, you know, book club books are like that. They're not ones that you choose. They're not ones that you enjoy, but you think, sure, I can do it. But I was in, I thought this sounded good. I thought I'd enjoy it. Um, here we go. Here's the blurb. This is in Greenland. Five friends. Fia breaks up with her long-term boyfriend for Sarah. But Sarah is in love with Ivik, who is about to break promises. Ivik struggles with gender dysphoria and Inuk is caught in a scandal involving social media, sex and betrayal. Behind the scenes is Arnuk, the life of the party, who brings a web of manipulations to a crescendo. Um, and there are just one chapter per character so once you've read the chapter about that character you might not necessarily hear from them again and if you do it's through another character um it's the opposite of a traditional story it's sort of done as a stream of consciousness uh, it's it's modern fiction it doesn't feel like fiction um i just found it I didn't know what it was trying to do. I didn't know if I was supposed to um, learn from it or um, rebel from it or just understand about it. I just, it's one of those books where you finish it and you think, well, what, well, why, what? Do you know what I mean? Um, it's about growing up. It's about sexuality. There's a lot of drinking drugs, all sorts. Um, there's a bit of throwing up, which I'm not a fan of in a in a book. Sorry, that's just me. Uh, oh, I haven't read you the first sentence, have I? So let's read you this one. Um, there's a cast of characters. I won't read you that. So the first chapter is about fear. Um, our plans. Number one, when I finish my education and have the money, we'll buy a house with lots of rooms and a balcony. 
Um, it's translated fiction. So if you are part of a book club and you're looking for something that will get people talking, it might not be a book that everyone says, wow, this was amazing. In fact, the book club I'm part of, it, it got a low mark, but it had lots of chat. There was certainly lots to discuss about it, but not my favourite. That's just me. You might absolutely love it. Um, that's why they always look at a range of books so that there's something that might stand out. But that was my least favourite this week. Um, but what a selection of books. So we've had David Baldalci, the one and only, whose latest book just out is Mercy and whose new book is out in April. So not long to wait for that one. Then we've got The Lion Club by Annie Ward. Love that book. Then we've got Felicity Everett's new book called Old Friends. Um, that was interesting. And then we've got Roaring Girls by Holly Kite. A great non-fiction, inspirational, interesting book. And that's it. I'm going to go. Once I finish recording this, I'm then going to try and stand up. And uh, I do have a habit of fainting sometimes when I've been kneeling for a while. So hopefully you'll hear from me again. Otherwise, if there is no podcast next week, <laughs> send someone round because I might have fainted on the floor. It's all good. It's all fine. It's one of those days. Um, but I've got a great author to talk to you about next week. Uh, some great books. Can't wait. And uh, yes, lots, lots to chat about. So take care. Look after yourselves. And I'll see you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.